whenever the printing press was, envel- was enveloped, <laughs> was developed, invented, uh, it opened up a brand new world for every person who would come into contact with its effects. Over the last 500 years, we've seen the effects of the printing press and people being given information readily available in a mass way. More recently, however, with the invention of the internet, we have been given mass amounts of visuals. If I leave you with nothing else today, remember this picture, because this picture captures what I'm after. This is The Doubting of St. Thomas by Caravaggio, painted in the early 17th century, 1601-1602. When we are talking about habits for developing sermons, or having a hermeneutic that sees holiness in a text. This is the image I want you to be left with. Thomas putting his finger into the wounds of Christ, which isn't in the text, by the way, but is the picture that was discerned. If you get nothing else, get this image. The truth is, if we're going to have holiness sermons, we need to reclaim a vision of what it means to be human. And really, this is the fundamental question of what's at odds or what's at stake in all the conversations that the world is having. The world is presenting to us various images, various pictures of what it means to be human. And as a result, they're not just pictures of what it means to be human. The world is presenting various images of holiness, As I said last night, and I believe Dr. Skink reaffirmed today, the initial couple was already exiled. Humanity has always been in exile because they bought the wrong vision of being human. And while the Israelites were in exile, they were presented false vision after false vision of what it meant to be human. They were surrounded with pseudo-visions, and our world is no different So it's up to us to reclaim a vision of what it means to be human. It's up to us to present holiness. It's up to us to present visions of it. Tangible, crisp, compelling visions of human being. So let me give you a perspective of the initial view of the human being. You have got God as the architect, the source, the friend of the human being who's in the center of these various contexts of the world, which includes order. God inherits, or God has a world that is formless and void, and he brings space, and he fills space in the created order. He brings order, he fills the space, and remember that the animals are created on the sixth day just before human beings. In other words, human beings and what it means to be human has a deep connection with what it means to be an animal. But yet they are different from animals. They are connected with one to another. It says that God has created us male and female. In the naming of the animals, Adam does not find a suitable helper for himself. In other words, he recognizes that he is completely different. There is something different between him and the rest of the animals. And in the naming process, Adam continuing on the ordering of the world by naming. Remember, God starts this process by naming light and dark. Adam continues on the naming, the ordering of creation by naming the animals. And in that process, he does not find a suitable helper for him. There is not one who is also like him in Genesis 2 until the woman is made. 
And in this relationship, there is no shame. So you have Adam in this kind of harmonious place between him and God. Humanity at one with each other. Humanity with a role in the world. Humanity at one with themselves. Naked and without shame. But then, of course, we know the story does not continue like this. We see Adam starts to hear, and Eve, not yet Eve, Adam and the woman start to hear the voice of the serpent. And instead of keeping pure the garden, instead of working and tilling it, or guarding and keeping it, which is the same word combination that's used to describe the work of the priests, instead of guarding and keeping the garden, they allow chaos into it. And they're at odds with the animals. They listen to the serpent, who is the craftiest of them. Think back to the phrase that has, describes Adam's relationship with the ground. Three times it has this phrase, you will eat, you will eat, and you will eat. In other words, the ground will produce what it's meant to produce, but it will come with sweat, it will come with anxiety, it will come with worry. Think about the times that you might sweat. What are some of the times that you might sweat? Pardon me? A final. a final, yeah, yeah. Why do you sweat at a final? Because you're going to ace it or because you might, might fail it, right? There's, there's anxiety. We often think about the curse as being this, this idea of not working or of working hard, that there's going to be sweat of our brow. That's not the case because we often have so much fulfillment after working hard. Human beings made in God's image are given a role. They're given a role to play of tilling the garden, of working it, of guarding and keeping it. John Walton says that the garden is meant to be the prototype from which they move out. They are fruitful and they multiply into the rest of the world. It's not hard work. In the ancient Near East, there was an idiom, the sweat of your brow reflected anxiety, fear, and worry. And if any of you grew up in a farming community, you know what it's like to eat the food of the ground by the sweat of your brow. Is there going to be enough rain? Is there going to be too much rain? Is there going to be enough sun? Is there going to be too much sun? Is the wind going to knock our crop over? If it does knock our crop over, is it going to stand back up for us to harvest it? It's probably more reasonable now for us to think about driving our cars by the sweat of our brow. What's the price of oil going to be? Can I fill my tank? What's the impact on the wider creation? Right, you're starting to see how the original human being, in harmony with all of these areas, is now at odds. There is disharmony in the midst of their creation. In your NIV, you likely have read the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. The problem is, however, that Eve is not named until Genesis 3. And the reason she's not named until Genesis 3 is because Adam beforehand has only named the animals. It's in naming Eve that he takes a position of authority over her, which he had no right to have. He had right to name the animals, He had no right to name Eve as the mother of all living, as the one who would bear his progeny. You're seeing disharmony between the male and the female. You're seeing disharmony between people and the animals and the order of creation. You're seeing disharmony between people and being one with themselves. Adam's pride reaching for more than what he was meant to be. And Eve's misery. Sin is not just grasping for more than what we are. Sin is also believing that we are less than what we are. Remember the temptation that the serpent brings to Eve. 
What does he say? You will be, this has gotta be interactive, we're after lunch. So if we're not interactive, then somebody's gonna fall asleep, and if it's me, we're in big trouble. So, you will be like God. Those words come after the affirmation that God had already created them, male and female, in his image. For Eve to take the temptation that you will be like God was for her to believe that she was already less than like God. You're seeing this disharmony between them and the creation, between them and one another internally, grasping for more than what they are meant to be, or grasping for who they are meant to be on their own terms, or believing that they are less. All that was harmonious is now broken into disharmony. What the story points us to is that the prototypical couple are exiled. By placing themselves outside the boundaries of God, there will be a pursuit, a consistent chasing of who they are meant to be, of what they are meant to be, a pursuit of what it means to be human. And because humanity has been in exile, we are continually asking that question. So is this what it means to be human? Any Seinfeld fans? Yes. Summer of George. Avoiding responsibility. Wanting the blessing of relationship without any kind of commitment. We're not men. No, we're not. Not owning up to marriage. Having a sense that that is what men did to become an adult in a committed relationship. And yet, avoiding responsibility, avoiding work, trying to have the benefits without responsibility and action. Is this what it means to be human? Powerful, driven, competitive, form of entertainment. Is this what it means to be human? Strength, determination. Is this what it means to be human? Self-transformation, I can be whoever I want to be. What it means to be human is that I can determine what it means to be human. Is that what it means to be human? That, as Stan Hauerwas said, the only story is that we had no story until we chose a story. Is this what it means to be human? An underlying sense of justice and a desire to be part of something that is putting things right and yet being at odds within oneself, having an ego, a self, and yet an alter ego, and maybe getting more done by not being who we are and somehow living into who we're not in order to be who we are. Is that what it means to be human? Each one of these pictures is a picture, is a vision of what the world presents to us as what it means to be human. They are the images, they are the visions, they are images of worldly holiness. What other images are presented to us that you have seen or that you encounter on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Do you resonate with any of these as far as seeing what it means to be human as visions that the world presents to us? Competing visions of what it means to be human. These images are all around us. We're always presented with what it means to be human because that's what being in exile means from a broad theological point is we are determining what it means to be us. The world presents its own visions for being human. It presents its own visions of holiness. So ultimately what you see is the human being determining what it means to be itself in these various contexts in the world with others in relationship with the self, self-determining, and inserting oneself in the place of God. Putting oneself, determining what it means to be human, 
without the architect, the source, the friend who determines and gives borders and boundaries to the rest of these contexts. First John simply uses language to describe these various contexts as lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's the vision that First John gives. Lust of the flesh, going after and creating a world that I desire. Pride of life, making for myself what it means to be human. St. Irenaeus said it like this, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And there is some uh, discussion as to whether or not he is pointing at a human being in general or whether or not he is specifically pointing at Jesus. And I don't think it really matters because both of us give the glory of God. And human beings like you and me are only the glory of God as we are like Christ because Jesus Christ is holiness. Jesus Christ is the human being. Holiness preaching is therefore preaching Jesus as our present vision and our future reality. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Scripture gives us a vision of holiness and it is Jesus. So you have Jesus inserted into the middle of all these contexts where the world starts to give what it was meant to do. Revelation 22, where the fruit the leaves of the trees are given to the healing of the nations in the kingdom. Where Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes a church of people who are at one with one another and only made so in community by the work of Christ. Where Jesus, as he is hanging on the cross, remains faithful to his mission against all odds, against all temptations that come to him in the wilderness, not in the midst of fruition, but in the wilderness, he is faithful to his calling. In the midst of fruition, the initial couple forsake. In the midst of barrenness, Jesus is faithful. Which brings us to this image. How do these competing visions engage with the text of Scripture? We had those various visions that the world gives to us of what it means to be human, of pseudo-holiness. And then we have the vision of Christ, who is holiness, who is the true human being. And it brings us to this picture. What do you see? Circle up at your tables and just take a couple minutes. Look at this picture. What do you see in it? What observations do you make of it?
All right, kind of, kind of discern maybe the top one or two things at your table that you think are, the, are most prominent in the picture to you, and, uh, and let's hear them. So, Kala, what, what are some of the top one or two things that you heard at your table as far as what you see in this picture? There's no blood, okay. Yeah, all right. I had, not, I had not thought of no blood, so I'm still reflecting on that. All right. Wheels are churning. You'll smell smoke in a second. Mark, you said, Jesus is guiding his hand. He, he's moving the hand of presumably Thomas into the wound. What else do you see? Yeah, there's a peering in, right? There, there's, a, there's an over-the-shoulder curiosity as well. What else do you see? Real wound, yeah. It's not make-believe. It was not a swooning. Yeah, he's, he, he's, not, he's not just allowing himself, he's pulling back the robe, right? He's uncovering himself. He's opening himself. What else do you see? Yeah, there's no shame. There, there's, there's an uncovering. I've been reflecting on this lately that the initial couple made uh, fig leaves for, for clothing, and in their place, God gave them skins, which involved the death of an animal. And in Jesus' crucifixion, there is, there is a disrobing. There is him becoming naked, and there is a flogging where his skin is pulled off. And it's like it acts as a covering for us in that act. What else do you see? Pardon me? Yeah, there, there, there's kind of like, like, it's hard to see on this, but if, you, if you're able to, to find this on, online, there, there's a furrowed brow, right? There's, there's, a, there's a kind of a wonderment and, and, and anxiety and curiosity all mixed together. Like, maybe we could say it like this, there's a fear and trembling involved. Anybody else? What else do you see? Here are some of the things that I saw. Thomas is putting his finger into Jesus' wound, right? It's not in the text. The, the text doesn't tell us that he did this. It simply says after Jesus invites him that Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. But in this picture, he's putting his finger into Jesus' wound. Others are looking at the wound, but Jesus is looking at Thomas's hand. He's not looking at the wound itself. He's looking down at, at making sure he's guiding it well. Jesus is exposing his wound, pulling back the robe, and he's guiding Thomas's hand. And these are just some of my observations. We all collectively had more, perhaps, signaling what the overlooking the shoulder could mean to us. This picture captures what a, developing a holiness hermeneutic looks like to me because the word made flesh is meant to be the one who is guiding us into the written word, taking our hands and guiding them into the text so that we can poke and prod around in, uh, poke and prod around in it to find the risen one, to find the true human. Developing a holiness hermeneutic or the habits we are developing is always looking at the text to say, where in this text is the true human, the risen Christ? Where is the vision of what it really means to be a human being? 
Developing a holiness sermon is poking and prodding around in the text under Jesus' guidance to find him, to experience him, to know him, to be like him, or to be with him, to see the truly human. Our story is replete with this image. Our story is replete with this vision that is as robust as the full-ordered vision was in Genesis. That there is life. There is life in this text that is, does more than compete with the visions of the world, but that presents a more beautiful, a more harmonious vision of what it means to be human, and that's what holiness is. Holiness is a complete set apart, not from the world so that we're missing out on something. It's being set apart from the world so that we can model for the world who they can ultimately be, which is like Christ, so that all those other pseudo-visions just fade away and are shown to be lacking. Maybe aspects of truth, power in being a human being, transformational in being a human being, desire for rest in being a human being, desire for work and accomplishment in being a human being, and yet they all fall short whenever God is not the source of it, whenever there is not a picture of true holiness. Maybe you can say it like this, where in this text is the true human being asking about suffering and hope for healing? Whenever you were a kid and you would be injured, you were probably like me and would run to a grown-up and you would show them your wound and what would you say? Look at it. And what did those crazy adults always want to do? Touch it. Don't touch it. That hurts. I just said look at it. <laughs> Thomas, put your hand here. Put your hand in my side. Why can Jesus say that? Because he's healed. There's no blood. He's totally healed. There's a restoration. There's a full life at work within him. And don't stop to think just about the physical healing of resurrection. These are the people who had betrayed him and deserted him unto death. And he is welcoming them into his presence. He shows up among them. And what does he have to say to set them aright? Peace. Peace be with you. Holiness preaching gives a vision of what it means to be the true human being. And being a truly human being involves a healing a restoration, not just physically, but psychologically, emotionally as well. We must not give up the fact that human beings can experience wonderful, amazing healing because Jesus Christ is risen and because he is our destiny. He is the image we will all attain to, whom we've been predestined to become. At the same time, this ought to remind us that there will be suffering and that one can be truly human and have suffering as well. Jesus suffered, and we will too. To give our people things to expect that this will come our way. Sri Lankan theologian Vinoth Ramakandra says it like this. This is what love entails, the capacity to be hurt by the other and to transform that hurt into creative action. The resurrection represented not the overcoming of the human, but its fulfillment. A perfected humanity is a Jesus-like humanity. Helping people see their wounds in appropriate time of healing as being creative drives, creative actions that ultimately bring good to the world. Just as leaves were crushed to make healing bombs, so bodies and spirits crushed can become healing bombs when they've been resurrected, when they've become holy. 
and know that this is part of their future. Where in this text is the true human, the risen Christ, asking that question, holiness preaching, affirming and focusing on human desires. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are all desires that are simply skewed. See, it makes sense for us to have and to be desiring beings in the midst of creation, to desire to extend the order of God into the world, to have a way that we are dominant over it, to its flourishing. Whenever we have people in our church who have a sense of ecological health and want to bring good health to the world, it's a good thing. It's part of holiness. It's part of what it means to be a true human being. It's just not the only thing. And it's not at the top. Whenever you have people who want to be whole with one another and put back together and they like psychology and they like sociology, it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to push them into and to encourage them, to give them a vision that it can be part of holiness as well. That their desire to see health, their desire to see relationship in those sciences and through those sciences is a picture of holiness. The desire to be at one with oneself, which we are seeing all the way around us, affirm that one should always be true to oneself. If there's a motto of our current pop culture, I think that's probably it. And not to be true to oneself is to be a liar, inauthentic, and less than human. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be true to oneself, but we must always present the picture that to be true to oneself is only to be true to Jesus Christ, who is the true human. Holiness preaching takes those different desires and affirms them, encourages them, and puts them in the context of Jesus, of being made in God's image. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are skewed versions of being at home, being in relationship, and being like God. And how do you overcome a skewed vision? You give it a better lens. We poke and prod around in the text. It's like putting all those, uh, the optometrist putting all those lenses in front of us and saying, is this better or is this better? Do you like this vision or this vision? And continually pointing back to Christ over and over and over again. Second question that we ask in developing holiness sermons is this, where does this text show how the world will kill us? The picture exposes the wounds of Jesus. It's hard to see on the screen, but you also see the wounds in his hands. Where does this text show us how the world will kill us? And I don't wanna paint us against the world because we put ourselves to death as well. I have students that against any kind of reasonable expectation, demand that they get A's. And I wanna say, you're chasing after an A, and it's killing you. Some of you in here are chasing after reordering your church, and it's killing you. You're chasing after a vision of what it means to be human that is not Jesus. And it's killing you. We have people sitting in our seats, in our churches, who are chasing after wealth, who are chasing after sex, who are chasing after whatever else it is to means to be human, and it's killing them. And the text will always open it up to us because there are only those three desires that get wrong, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There's only so many ways, so many visions that we can invent that compete with Jesus. 
but every one of them will kill us. Where does the text, where does engaging with it as we're poking and prodding around it, where does it show us how we are killing ourselves? Because here's the truth. When Jesus was crucified, he wasn't the only one crucified. When Jesus was crucified, he wasn't the only one crucified. In other words, the injustice that was committed against him spawned more injustice. Whenever we see the world presenting various visions of what it means to be human, it doesn't just end up in us being wounded as Christians who present another vision. It ends up in every other vision that is competing with that vision of what it means to be human, ultimately being crucified and torn down as well. We engage the world presenting a vision of holiness, presenting a vision of Jesus Christ, because that is the way of peace, not just for us, but for them as well. Where does this text show us how the world will kill us or how we, acting as the world, kill ourselves? Where does it show us enmity within the world, the world at odds with itself, vying for power, vying for authority? Here's the vision. Yesterday, Pastor Steve talked about unity with Christ. And the joy of the vision of Jesus Christ as the human being is not that it competes with us, it's that it completes us. We teach children to invite Jesus into their heart, and I think there's some room for that metaphor but much better, and where we must ultimately take them, is to remind them that Jesus, by his ascension, has gone into the heart of God, and forever there is a human being at the center of who God is, the very place we are meant to occupy. And God is not giving Jesus back. God, in other words, is not giving us back. There is as much room for us in Christ as there is, uh, as there is room for us in God. Jesus Christ puts himself in the middle of that kind of harmonious place with the world, with others, and with ourselves, and he invites us into it. He is not diminished. He is glorified. We are not made less. We are made more. Holiness is always presenting that vision of how human beings can be who they are originally meant to be, how they can be more than the pseudo-visions they accept, than the pseudo-visions they chase after, than the pseudo-visions that have put them to death, than the ways that they chase that are killing themselves. Holiness is presenting a vision of being truly human, being united with Christ, affirming desires to do right ecologically, affirming desires to do right relationally, affirming desires to be right, psychologically. Asking ourselves, where is there harmony or where is the potential harmony between the desires of people in our church so that as they are linked up with Christ, that what they are wired to do and they're naturally, uh, or maybe they're, they're buried, desires for love can be affirmed and fanned into flame. Asking ourselves, where is their harmony? Where is their unity? Where is their opportunity for growth? This is a vision of being human. This is a vision of holiness. Reflect on this picture. The preacher is poking, prodding, 
seeking around in the text. Out of his shabby, holy, H-O-L-E-Y, if that's how you spell it, clothes, looking for something real, looking for something true, looking for something that will last. That's the work of the preacher, looking at the Holy One, examining what it means to be human, perhaps with a bit of fear and trembling, knowing that if this is the truly human, then I've chased after something that's been wrong and I need to repent, the preacher being the chief repenter. Not doing so on their own, but with others looking over their shoulder, knowing that there are lives at stake because of the work they will do. And yet knowing there is a community with them who will participate in this search with them. How does this, speak, how does this picture speak to you? How does this picture drive you back to look in the text again and again? for health, for ways the world puts itself to death. How does this picture call you again and again to the simple ministry of telling the truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, not growing old, not growing weary, not growing stale, not growing faithless. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna spend simply just another minute or two reflecting on what the Lord would speak to us in it. Now, dear Father, as the Lord Jesus exposed himself, pulled back the robe, and revealed himself to the disciples, we expose ourselves to you. C.S. Lewis said, how can we expect God to meet us face to face until we have faces? We take off our masks. We lay aside our pseudo-visions and we ask, show us Christ. Give us a picture of what it really means to be human and let us communicate that as a vision of holiness. Speak to us through this painting given to us so long ago, but use it to communicate and speak to us freshly right now, to invigorate us to the work of preaching, to inspire in us a vision of holiness that can be winsome and affirming to our people.
May God give us visions as powerful and potent as this one to present to our people on a consistent basis as to who they are becoming and who they will ultimately be in God's good time. God bless you.